Hey, it's Darcy McConvey, and this is the Venture and Gains podcast. The purpose of the show is to connect people to other great people, ideas, and opportunities. Everyone has less than a handful of people in their network where it seems like there's something different about them. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold, and they're those can't-miss people, and you just know it. These are the podcast guests. We catch them at various stages of their career, learn from how they think, so you can connect the dots and imply it. Most importantly, we all want to meet more of these people, and we'll work to connect you. Mukala Partners' Pat Hayes takes us through his career development and how his incredible mindset has helped him excel. Find out how he uses his unique blend of leadership, emotional intelligence, and business acumen to help private equity firms maximize human capital. Pat founded Mukala Partners in 2019. Prior to that, he worked at Green Peak Partners and Bridgewater Associates. I love some of his insights on data-driven decisions and how they should be used in the interview and hiring process and the importance of mentors and tapping into the wisdom of others. All right. Pat Hayes, welcome to the show. Super pumped to have you on today. You know, as I think about you and the work you're doing at Mukala, the one thing that always strikes me about you personally is just how positive of a person you are. It seems like you have boundless energy. Where's that positivity come from? Well, first of all, Darcy, I'm I'm stoked to be here, which is probably the exact answer you'd expect from somebody you, you gave that intro to. I don't know, man. I, I think that I was blessed with just being an optimistic guy, which, which probably goes back to, you know, I had a great childhood with parents who love me and supportive home and a lot of opportunities. And then I don't know, man, everything I've done, team sports, Peace Corps, what I'm doing now as an entrepreneur, I, I just find that attitude matters so much. And I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing where I, I realized early on that it mattered. You know, I, th- I think back, you were a sports guy too. You have those coaches who are just hammering into you, you know, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. And I think I was just surrounded by that and so influenced by my life in athletics early on that I'm sure that had a, a huge part to it. And then I, just as I got older, I think I, I saw the power of a positive attitude and, and conversely, the power of a, a more negative defeatist attitude. And, and I know which side of the fence that I, I want to be on. It's, it, it's definitely, you know, no one can live over there all the time, but I, I think I, I want to be there. I try to be there. And, and, and a lot of what, motivates me to do what I do through my work is to help other people be over there too. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say that because that's exactly how I, I want to walk the earth, you know? You definitely do. Like there's, there's no question about it. I think with the attitude though, you know, they say attitude's a choice and, you know, I think most people know that, but it's still a tough choice to make to be positive the majority of the time versus sometimes drip, you know, fall into the negative category. So that's got to be embedded in you. I know that you said you saw the effects of a, a positive attitude early on, but like to then incorporate that into you, who you are and your persona in your day to day, to me, that's a, a special trait to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, well, look, it's hard, man. Like all this stuff is, is, it's hard. Personal development is hard. It's hard. It's, I say it all the time, like do, do the hard work. And so I, I think a lot of people we live in a world where people are just looking for the easy way out and there's a scapegoat culture and take the pill and the thing's done. And, you know, I was just reading on Farnham street. I forget what Shane Parrish, how he framed it up, but it's like, you can basically be an owner and be proactive in your life or you can be like reactive. Oh, this always happens to me. Woe is me. And 
I just think that we are almost tragically like indoctrinated culturally to look for shortcuts. And the problem is shortcuts never get you, they don't get you far because you're never building the skills, the resilience, the knowledge, the network, the internal sense of agency to then like have the confidence and and to have the optimism to then just face up to whatever it is that confronts you. And I think a lot of it is, is that, which is that I think bringing that attitude to bear every day, it's like this really amazing spiral up self-reinforcing cycle, right? Where you're like, okay, I saw myself and I'll, I'll take it back to sports. I mean, I saw myself get my ass kicked on that play and then get up and then kick that guy's ass the next play. Yeah. Okay. Like small event, right? Like you saw that in hockey, right? Like small event in and of itself, but then you do that again. And then you, you have a little bit more, I get goosebumps now talking about this, right? Then you have a little bit more, you're a little bit more likely to, to, to take agency that next time and see what's possible and push through. And so I don't know. I, I think again, it goes back to upbringing, the influence on me of sports. And then I think that in addition to just being positive, I think I'm also a guy who likes to do like hard things and do the hard work. And I care so much about, you know, living a life well lived myself for me as a model to my children, as a husband to my wife, as a friend to my friends. Like I care so deeply about that, that it's, it doesn't even feel like a choice anymore. And again, not to say like, I don't have the bad days. Cause like, I'll, I'll go into that side of it, which is one of the big things for me in the past couple of years in particular is actually learning to give myself permission to not be like Mr. Jazzed up. Everything's awesome guy. Right. What does that look like? Cause I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, it's hard. And I mean, I think for me, it was the, the journey was even acknowledging that that part of me existed because it became so much of, this is where like you can swing in these become like this hyperbolic version of yourself where, you know, you get so conditioned to being that guy and you, that becomes a part of your identity. I think for me, it was acknowledging that that was part of me. Like, of course, dude, everyone has, everyone has lousy days. Everyone feels defeated. Like that happens. And so it was acknowledging that, that, you know, that that was even there and then giving myself permission to feel those things and not shaming, you know, while you shouldn't feel that, that makes you weak, you know, and just learning to kind of be with it. And I think the, the irony of this whole thing is that the more, at least for me, the more I could relax into the full continuum of my experience of life, good, bad, otherwise happy, scared, fearless, afraid, like all the, the, the sides of the more I could live into the full range. Paradoxically, I think like in a weird way, the more time I spent on the side of that spectrum that is most comfortable to me, you know what I mean? But it was like this really deep paradox of how do you, how do you get comfortable? I'm still working on it. How do you trust that what you can give easily is enough? Look, it's a rare skill set to be able to do it like relentlessly like you do. Um, and I know you're saying you kind of take a step back and, and, and maybe check the positivity sometimes and just take it all in. But, you know, one of the reasons why personally I started the podcast was because, you know, there's certain people in, in life that you come across and they just have special traits or a special thing about them. And, you know, whether you can invest in them or help them or surround yourself more often with them. And like, you're unequivocally a guy that checks that box and I'm sure, you know, people can hear it right out of the gates. Thank you. Um, your, your energy and what you bring to life. So, you know, if we switch gears a little bit, tell me about bringing that personality to work one and what, what, what is the work that you do? Tell me about the work you do. You know, I help 
people and teams be the best versions of themselves. That's like the essence of Mukala. And, and you know, it's funny. I, I think that my career to date has been this kind of steady progression towards the Jim Collins hedgehog concept of like work that you find meaningful, work that you're talented at and work that, you know, you'll get paid to do. Sure. And, and I think I've just kind of in this iterative way moved closer and closer to that. And Mukala is now the latest version of that. And it's, it's an, I'll, I can say it's, um, it's pretty awesome that, that it is that because I find meaning. I, I get, I think I get to be good at what I do and there's a real market opportunity. So the, the bread and butter of my business is kind of two sides of the coin. It's, it's working with private equity investors to assess the management teams of the businesses that they're investing in. So this is kind of the diagnostic portion where I'll go in and interview senior leaders and, and come away with a view on, you know, how scalable is this group? What are the changes we're likely to have to make? Because, you know, my clients by definition, when they, when they make an investment, they're going to want to do something different with the business than what that business has been doing before almost all the time. And so usually that requires some change in leadership. So they want me to help them get a read on that. And, and as part of that, get a read on what I call organizational health. So how clear is the strategy? How well aligned are people around it? Uh, what are the strengths and weaknesses functionally in the business? And how do those things match up with whatever my client's value creation plan is? Uh, culture, morale, uh, you know, things like if it's a, a one of these businesses that's on its third or fourth private equity owner and the prior owners are just smashing together a bunch of businesses, you know, how well integrated are they? Yeah. What are the key things we need to focus on there? And then I help my investors make more informed decisions, usually more quickly about who to keep, who to upgrade, who to layer or changes they should make, places they should focus on. And then usually once that project's over, I pivot to making the portfolio company my client and working usually with the CEO to help them think through a lot of the same stuff, but with much more now of like my natural uh, coaching lens to it. So how do we help that CEO or the team as individuals be as effective as they can be? That's, you know, one-on-one executive coaching, usually providing a lot of really thoughtful feedback from phase one that I described of, of the assessment. You know, here's what you're doing well, here's what you could do better. But then in addition to each individual as a, as a collective, what are the team building activities and things like that that we can do to help the group together you know, work better together. And there's two sides to that, to me, of team building. One is what people think of when they think of team building, which is accelerating trust and, and helping that group, um, you know, learn how to work well together. And then part two of it is, is helping them get aligned. And so that's the, the kind of team building component. You know, how do we create more trust in the group? And then how do we get the group on the same page about what they need to work on, which is, it goes back to those organizational health kind of insights that I come away with, you know, Hey, we need to integrate these two organizations better. Uh, we need to focus on this pocket where morale is, uh, you know, brutal. And and by the way, finance just isn't even close to what you're going to need it to be to, to scale the business the way you want it. So we need to focus on that. And so that's the totality of it. It's kind of the upfront assessment piece. And then the tale of individual in team coaching, again, almost always in the context of a private equity backed business. So how did you end up, you know, in this sort of domain, private equity, it's somewhat niche, I guess. Most people think it's relatively niche, like a place to focus on your coaching. Um, But you can see how it sort of sprawls into, you know, multiple avenues, both at the investor level, the firm at the private equity firm itself, and then into the portfolio companies. But how'd you end up here? It's a good question. And this is one of those, like, you can't plan it looking forwards, but in hindsight, I guess it starts to make sense, uh, which is why I'm always wary of like people giving a lot of forward-looking career advice you know, it, it's a little bit of a stumble into it. You know, my, my journey was undergrad Peace Corps. I then went back to where I played football in undergrad and coached football. And, and then I, I, I had my first job job, which was as a, uh, as a, uh, trader 
at, at Fidelity. And I did that for a few years before I went to business school. And, and the thing I learned at Fidelity was I, I went there with basically for two reasons. I saw the environment on a trading floor, which is really a, a truly unique for anyone who's been on it, work environment, very team oriented. And I'm such a team, team guy that that was super, super appealing to me. And then I also wanted to make money. And I think very quickly, I, I realized there that I just wasn't that interested in the markets. Like they weren't uninteresting to me, but reading the Wall Street Journal felt a little bit like work. Paradoxically, I think that feels less like work now. But, but either way, at that point in time, I just wasn't. I sat next to a guy who was, he'd come in every morning like, oh, I'm going to do this trade. And he had these ideas. And I'm like, this guy is going to run circles around me. You know what I mean, dude? Yeah, yeah. Like as hard as I work, like he's thinking about this in the shower and I'm just kind of here to punch my ticket. And so right. I, it was a pretty big aha for me that, you know, I think some people are better than others at, at operating on autopilot. Um, I still don't think it's a good tactic in general, but I think I'm pretty bad at it. And so I knew that I, I needed to do something different in business school. And so I went to school. That's where you and I met. And, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of got me to, to take the leap. But basically coming out of the MBA, I went to Bridgewater Associates, and, but I, I didn't go into an investing role. I went into a general management role because I knew, again, like there was something for me in what I was broadly calling at the time, the people side of business. Mm -hmm. Like I knew that that was interesting to me. I knew I was really interested in people. I always have been. I'm fascinated by people, super curious. That's probably part of the reason I come across as so optimistic in some ways is I am just truly almost all the time, not all the time, but almost all the time, just really thrilled to be meeting and engaging with new people. So like I knew that was a real core intrinsic passion and interest area for me. And then I was also, I was very interested in, in the world of business, broadly building something. I kind of knew, I was knew I wanted to build something. So I went to Bridgewater. I did this work. It confirmed, you know, it confirmed my thesis anyways, that this was a space that I wanted to play in. And then I, I left Bridgewater, went to a firm called Green Peak, which worked almost exclusively with private equity. And, and that's where I, I think I learned how to take the talent assessment, talent development, uh, you know, organizational design work, um, and, and apply it in a, in, a, in, a, in, in a private equity context, but also apply it as a, an external advisor, right. learn how to be a consultant and an advisor. And then, you know, when I, that, that, that's what got me into the PE space. And then when I left Greenpeak a year and a half ago, January of, of 2019, so a little more than that, and started Mukala, it was, I, I knew where I wanted to, to play because I, I, like, I like a few things about private equity. I like the singularity of the focus. So it's, you, there's, there's no... There's very little confusion about what people are trying to make happen, right? We are trying to grow the bottom line and sell this thing for more than we bought it. And I, I like that focus because of what it can, that the kind of North Star that it can give a management team to work towards, where I think some businesses don't have that. They don't have the discipline and plan. I mean, my business right now, like planning, what's the, what is the plan? Yeah. How are we going to work towards that? So I like that. I like the fact that my clients are really demanding and they're really smart. Because I just like playing in a space where I'm going to be with people who are going to make me better. And I feel that. And then the other thing is just from a, from a, like a, a business development or sales perspective, it's a great channel for me to work through because I can spend a ton of time opening up one corporate client and they're going to call me for a project or two a year, maybe. But if I really break into a great private equity client, every time they do a deal, if I've done it right, they're going to pick up the phone and call me. Anytime they run into problem with a portfolio company of which they have, you know, 
So my smallest client probably has 10 portfolio companies. My largest probably has 90. Yeah. Um, you know, they're going to think to call me for these kinds of issues. So they're also a great client from a business perspective because there's just a higher frequency of reasons for them to think to call Mukawa. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a recurring revenue base almost in a way, right? Like you don't have to, you almost, the, the decision makers are hiring you again and again for multiple portfolio companies versus you chasing down decision maker after decision maker, which is a smart move. Absolutely. I, I like it. Yeah. Hearing about your background, like one, I think leaving the trading floor at the time you did was timing was probably relatively good because I'm guessing a computer can do the job you were doing better than you could do that job. But yeah, I got lucky with that one. I listened to a bunch of old salty people on the desk who were telling me to go do something else because this is going by the way of the machines. And sure enough, it has. I mean, my group that was when I was there in 2000, so 13 years ago, I joined in 2007. Mm -hmm. There were 40 something traders. I think they're down to less than half of that now. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And so you get to Bridgewater and Bridgewater is a much written about, you know, Ray Dalio, you know, obviously super sharp guy with interesting views, perspectives and built a massive business. You hear a lot of positive, obviously, and you hear some negative around quirkiness. So I'm not asking you to yeah. to dive too deep here, but um, what were some of the learnings that you took away from Bridgewater? Because you know you mentioned at this phase, you like the fact that you know private equity investors are very demanding, competitive, and sharp, and like that's the ethos of Bridgewater, from my understanding. So, like, what was the learning or takeaways you have for, from your time at Bridgewater? It's a great question. I mean, Bridgewater, I always joke, is both famous and infamous for this culture. And it's truly, truly unique. And the first thing that I learned in a, a very visceral way there was, I mean, I think I knew the importance of culture, but I had never experienced the power of culture. And this is a place unlike anything I've ever been a part of, frankly, where the culture informed the way that everything got done. Like it, it, the way I, the analogy I'd use is almost like it was the, it was the, the culture was like the playing field that you played the sport on. Right. And, and it was that, it was that core. And, and a lot of people, I, I had great, I had a great experience there and a terrible experience there all in the same box. Right. And I think a lot of people were, were in the same boat. Some people had probably more terrible. A few people have had more great, but I think the first learning was that was the power of culture. And what the power is, is that it gives you to go back to that analogy, but like, but field, maybe it's not the field, it's the rules of the game. It, it helps normalize the way that you and I are going to be with one another. Right. And, and, and I think a lot of times what I see happen in businesses is there, there always is a culture, but most of the time it happened by accident or it kind of like orga very organically emerged. And I don't want to make an organically emerging culture a universally bad thing, but I think the challenge when you're not somewhat prescriptive about it and you're not choiceful and deliberate about how you want to be is you can get all kinds of things in there that you don't want to have. And I, and I think Br Bridgewater, the essence of that place to me was, you know, do hard things, hold a really high bar for one another and just be real with each other about what's working and not working. And, and I think that philosophy is a, an absolutely phenomenal way to go through life. And I like the fact that, that Ray Dalio and, and, you know, culture is absolutely an outgrowth of, of your founder. And you're going to see that in a lot of businesses. And I think Bridgewater is, is maybe the ultimate example of that. But he, I, I really appreciate the fact that he, he created that standard. Now, at the same time, I think that the other thing I learned is just how hard it is to maintain 
a culture period, and maybe in particular, although maybe just in general, a culture like that was really difficult. And especially because a lot of it was around the importance of providing objective feedback, which many times is negative. And that's a hard thing for human beings to do. And so the effort that was put in to try and ensure that that culture was permeating down to the very bottom level, I mean, it's a heavy, heavy lift. On that note, you know, in a way, when you have principles, values, and a culture that's sort of strong one way or another, or even not strong, like in some ways it's self-selecting in terms of the people that end up there. And I'm sure Bridgewater is no different. And people that aren't cut out of that cloth would realize it likely quite quickly. So I'm guessing, you know, that's the case. Was that the case for you? And then I guess the follow-on question there is, if we step back to your business in the day-to-day or the business you know, that you're running now at Mukala, how do you kind of code that culture to then hire for the business? Yeah, this is a great question. So culture, absolutely. And in, in no place more that I've ever seen is more than at, at Bridgewater is, is a, it's a, like a self-selecting thing in your hiring where people will self-select in and many people will self-select out yeah. as soon as they start to learn more. And to Bridgewater's credit, they lead with that and they lead with the culture in the interview process all the way to the point that you have candidates watching videos of really particularly powerful cultural moments where someone's being called out in a room with 30 people and it's super intense. Um, And then you have interviews just focused on culture after that, at least this is when I was there. Um, I'm sure they're probably doing some similar things to this day where you kind of get grilled in that way and asked to kind of navigate some of this same tricky cultural things in an interview that you might there. And I think I, so I think in that way, it's a fantastic tool for, especially I I've heard this from a number of my clients who are, who are like earlier stage founders. And one of the things they say is, you know, if, if there was one thing I could do differently early on, I would have been more prescriptive about the culture because it would have helped us hire better. On that note, like how is someone prescriptive about culture outside of those things like a mission, a purpose, the values, like, yeah. Can you be more prescriptive than those written words? And if so, how? It's a great question. I don't have like the magic bullet answer. I think all the things you said, by the way, are really important, like sitting down and I have one client right now who just did this. So, you know, what is the, what's the, what are we, what's the mission statement of the business and not some like lofty BS thing? Like, what are we trying to do? Okay. How do we want to be in service of achieving that mission? Like what's the, What's the social contract we want to create between us as business partners? Like, is and it goes from big conceptual stuff to very tactical stuff. Is it cool to be on your phone in a meeting? Right. Like that stuff matters. Is it cool? You know, is it cool to call me on a Sunday? Mm-hmm. You call me any day, you know, anytime you want up to midnight on Saturday, but don't ever touch me on a Sunday. Like those little things actually matter a lot, but then you can get into like the bigger, more ethereal stuff, pursuit of, of truth over, you know, uh, idea meritocracy, get to the best idea versus your idea. Right. Integrity things. And I think just the act of having the conversation and memorializing these things in writing early on is an extraordinarily powerful tool. And so many people don't do it. And it's like the, like, it's kind of a funny analogy to bring up. But when I was in high school, I can remember people used to, or in college, they talk about, you know, did you have the DTR yet with the, with the girlfriend? And the DTR was the define the relationship. You know, it's that weird <laughs> period before you're like, are you my girlfriend? You know? <laughs> and it's like, it's like, uh, like, have you as a company had the DTR? Right. And so many people kicked a can down the road on that. And then, so that's important. But then 
as if not more important, you know, it's be the change you want to see in the world. I say this all the time. I, I try to hold myself to the standard. Okay. So you put all that awesome stuff down on paper. Now go be that person. Right. Right. Like when you find yourself in the meeting and you feel like someone's doing something that's out of bounds, call balls and strikes, call that out and, and give your team, especially if you're at the top of the hierarchy, do everything you can as a leader to make it super easy. And this is kind of like embedding my version of what the ideal culture would be, but I'll say it anyways, like make it super easy for your people to call you out, own your mistakes. And so I, I, I see it as like this, the best I can come up with, the best answer I have to that question is like, have the DTR and not, don't just have it once, have it, have it again, revisit it. Maybe it's every year you, you come back to it. What's changed? What do we want to tweak? And then have an honest, by the way, in those moments, have an honest team and self-assessment of how you're living up to that and not, and, and be real on that. And then just go be those people. And this stuff rolls downhill, you know, like you have to, if you're a founder and you're going to put in place this culture around integrity, and then you're doing a bunch of stuff with low integrity, like, guess what, dude, your culture is not going to work. Yeah. People see it. I remember something you told me a couple of years ago, be the father you want your kids to become. Same thing, I guess, nice. right? When you're at, yeah. the, at the top of the heap in terms of a CEO or, you know, executive leadership, that's, uh, there's not much more than that ultimately, I guess, right? Totally. Totally. I guess let's flip now back into like an actual engagement because, you know, there's a number of things you do. So you can, why don't we start at the top and say, so you're introduced to company X, private equity investor, um, you know, regardless of industry, where does it start? What does it look like? Because I want to kind of highlight like the day to day, what you're doing and how you're helping. Awesome. Yeah. So I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like at the tail end of one of these where I had, I have a, a PE client based in New York, mid-market investor. They bought a business in Q1 2019, and then they bought another, they technically acquired all those really a merger of, there were $2 billion businesses in Q4 of 2019. And these two organizations were from a cultural perspective, complete opposites. One, the original purchase was uh, a, uh, had been, it was a spin out from a large, huge, gigantic international corporation. So they'd been like a business unit within this bigger, slow moving, bureaucratic, Titanic type place. And then the company that they merged with had been private equity backed for several years and was just the much more focused on ROI and, um, uh, they were much more nimble and, and, and I don't want to make the second one fully right either. There were, there was, there were good aspects to both these cultures and what they, what happened was they brought these two businesses together. Very quickly, it became apparent that they, the, 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 the management teams were not able to work with one another and they hadn't probably done enough to think through how, uh, how these two groups would get together. Although the, the, the interesting kind of like corner case variable that was at play here was right around the time that these two teams coming together would have been going to the dinner and having a drink and a few laughs and that kind of thing, COVID happened. And so they were forced to be remote. And so you had these two teams, completely different cultures. They kept almost everybody from the two teams and they were unable to spend time with one another. And this became like abundantly clear to my clients. And so they, they, um, they, and I'd been talking about this product for like a year and a half, even before they bought the first business, cause they, they knew they were going to do some aggressive M and a, uh, so they asked me to go in and they said, we want you to go in. We want you to interview kind of everybody from, you know, company one senior leadership team and company two leadership team. And we want you to tell us 
what's the right leadership structure for the team going forward? Who are we going to keep? Who are we going to get rid of? What should the roles be? Because we've got some redundancy here, but there's a lot of work that needs to get done. And basically, how do we get this group stacking hands and working together? And so my, my training in the space is, is it's, it's kind of a, the, the model I use on these organizational assessments, I say a lot, is, is a hybrid of you know, classic behavioral interviewing, you know, what you've done in the past is likely to be what you'll do in the future type, type philosophy. And then management consulting, which is understanding what's going on in your area of the business and, and how that's working. And so I went in, I had, did, I don't know what it was, uh, you know, 15 interviews with these folks and, and gave everyone a personality survey and then kind of pulled all the data. You know, the interviews cover a lot of the things I talked about on organizational health um, and, and, you know, strategy and, and functional strengths, weaknesses, and what's working well and could, could work better, uh, you know, culture, those kinds of things, uh, as well as 360 feedback on colleagues. And I kind of pulled together all this data and, and went back to my client and, and with some recommendations about, about uh, uh, what to do. I then helped socialize that change with the CEO and have since kind of pivoted in the, in the way I described to having that portfolio company as the client more than the private equity investor, the client. So you're saying you're socializing the change alongside the private equity partners to the CEO of the portfolio company? Bingo, right? So how do we get all of us, the three parties call it in the room together? Right. So you got the PE sponsor, you've got the CEO of the uh, the portfolio company, the CEO, we're going to back, by the way, there was another one too, that was, was not part of the forward looking picture right. and me. And how do we, you know, my, my way of doing it is I, I, I like to debrief the investor. I debrief the CEO one-on-one. And then I say, let's all get together. And then you CEO make this yours. Like, what do you want to do? And then having those three parties in the room, in, in my experience and based on feedback I get from my clients, it just helps. Look, I'm a third, I have no dog in the fight, right? I'm a third party objective hopefully reasonably capable advisor with um, viewpoints that are, are hopefully additive. And so to have me as a partner in helping uh, a PE firm and a CEO who really haven't worked together for very long and don't know that each other that well, align on the changes they're going to make and what they're going to do, I think is a really, uh, it's a really valuable thing. Yeah. The, yeah. the third party component of it is is huge. And then, so just the CEOs generally take to it pretty well. Like I'm guessing that sometimes, you know, they don't have a choice in a way, but that's the whole idea of socializing it. But do they generally take to it pretty well? I'd say the answer is it depends. Yeah, I like to think I'm like a moss. I grow on people. Maybe, maybe <laughs> it's that. Maybe it's that. It's that positivity piece. But you know, it, it's one of these jobs where you need to be okay not being some. You know, showing up and having people not be thrilled to have you there. Right. And I think I kill them with kindness, and I try to keep things upbeat. And and I am truly very curious about their businesses, about them as individuals, about their colleagues. And I think that genuine curiosity shines through. And, and, and over time, I'd say I have a pretty good track record of, I don't know if you want to call it winning over, but probably winning over some of these CEOs to get them to trust me and see that, you know, because basically in, in, in almost all these cases, I'm sharing the same work I share with the PE firm with the CEO. Right. So they can decide for themselves. And I think that proof of concept to a certain extent for me is when the CEO sees the work, if I'm doing good work, that is informing the decisions the CEO is making for the next six to 12 months. Sure. And it's, you know, they can decide for themselves. And these, oftentimes these CEOs have been in this business for five, 10, 15 years before I show up. And so what, what I see happening is that they appreciate me and my genuine, um, I think just motivation to help and I think they also see, I'd like to think the fact that I do come away with some pretty actionable and insightful 
recommendations. And I think that that then encourages those CEOs to ask me to stick around and continue to help. You know, oftentimes when the knock on consultants, management consultants or whatever it is, like obviously super sharp people, big sort of knowledge databases that they can lean on and offer terrific insights, you know, but the knock can be that they leave it at a recommendation. So like, where does the recommendation end and does the implementation start? Or that's kind of up to the CEO and the investor to kind of make that call. Yeah. Good question. So like, I know what I want it to be, which is I want to stick around and help. Right. And I want to stick around and help for two reasons. If it's two, maybe it's three. One is I actually want to see if what I recommended is actionable and right. 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 Like I would love to, I'd love to know if the thing I told you to do actually worked out for the business in the long run. Right. Uh, the other reason I want to stick around and do it is it's a better business model for me because now I sell the initial work and then I've got a tail of revenue that comes on the back of it. Right. So there's a lot of motivation for me to stick around and do it. I can't always do it. And this is, you know, in fairness to consultants who get the bad rap for that at the end of the day, you're not an employee in the business Mm -hmm. and you can't make these things happen. You have to influence and not only influence like someone in the moment to get them to come around to what you're suggesting that they do, but then go that next step. And this is where like embedding as an executive coach with some people can be really helpful, actually influence them to then go take the action. Yeah. Right. And it, it's hard and it takes time, you know, and I think I understand why a lot of advisors don't want to do it. I just know for me to go back to the thing I said earlier around job crafting in a way where I'm getting closer to, you know, the, the kind of my highest and best use and building a business that like a business that I want to work in. I know that anyone who's going to be successful working at Mukala with me is going to love people and they're going to really want to help people get better and help businesses get better. And I think by definition, if that's what you really care about, dropping a deck on someone's desk, giving them a little debrief and, and piecing out isn't, isn't going to scratch that itch. Yeah. It's, you know, to use your football or sports analogy, it's like practicing every day. You know, I think about in college, you practice five days a week and you play two days a week. It's like practicing every day and then yeah. sitting on the sidelines, you'd be just pacing, you know, if you're in a football field, you'd just be pacing up and down the side of the field, right? You would, your personality would not be able to carry out the, <laughs> uh, carry this thing to completion. That, that'd be yeah. my guess. It drive me crazy. And I get smarter. That's the other thing. Like, like to go back to the fact that I love private equity clients because I learn from them, make no mistake, every one of these engagements where I stick around and I spend six months working with the CEO and the leadership team, I, I learn a ton mm-hmm. from them. Yeah, I bet. What is a good recommendation? What's realistic? Where did that one get stuck? How can I write a better rec or or push a better recommendation with the next client and the next business? Yeah, and as you do it, you know, n- not to go too far off track is, you know, y- y- you end up seeing similar themes and consistencies from one firm to another. So now, now you're confident in your, not confident in your recommendations, but can almost offer, like to your point about an executive coach, that additional insight um, you know, whether it's connecting people to people, you can op- almost offer that additional insight that makes you that much more valuable. Yeah, for sure. So if we think about, you know, going back to the interview process and then, and then maybe we'll jump into your business itself. 
So what, what is the data that you're capturing? Like, are you quantifying it through this interview process? And like, is it ranked or is there some sort of scoring system or is it gut, gut feel? So first the answer will be, and should be over time in my space that there is more kind of quantitative, quantifiable data on how people are performing in a business because they have more robust performance management structures, but then also how that talent and that human capital is driving business performance. As it stands right now, like for me, I look for, when I say get good data in an interview, for me, what that means is get tangible examples about what someone has or has not done. Because those tangible examples, this could be just interviewing a person for a job, like you're going to hire someone in your business and thinking up front about what you're going to need that person to do. And then going into the interview and actually getting examples of, okay, so you're going to hire them to build out and, you know, to rationalize your product set. Getting examples of stuff they've done, either doing that exact thing or things like that, or failing to do that is going to be really useful in your, your, your decision-making and ability to make what I call a data-driven decision about whether or not to hire that person. Because mm-hmm. I tend to prescribe the idea that past performance is one of the best predictors of future performance. Now, there's a lot of nuance and gray around that, but in like a, a, a rough and dirty way, I think about that a lot. And so when I go in and I interview, I'm, I'm looking to understand a few things. I'm looking to understand how is the business performing at an overall level, but then you think about where I play, I play at the C-suite level pretty much exclusively. So then how are those functions performing? Like what are those functions doing well? What are the opportunities for those functions as the business exists right now? And the whole time I've spent time before I go into these interviews with my private equity client, understanding their value creation plan. Like, what are they going to do to this business? Are they going to go on an M&A tear? And so they're going to do 20 acquisitions over the next three years. So they need to be able to source diligence and integrate and finance and all these other things that go into that, that kind of activity. So does the business have the capabilities to do that now? How'd the last acquisition go, right? Uh, what went wrong there? What went well? So I'm looking for data about how the business is performing. Then I'm also asking, you know, in my clever interviewing way for data uh, directly or indirectly on how leaders are performing based on the assessment of their peers. And the other kind of source of data that I layer onto that when I can is something like a personality survey. I I like Hogan, but there's a bunch of them out there. The one that people know the most is Myers-Briggs. There's a lot of those instruments out there. I think all those instruments are are imperfect and there are always inherent contradictions and I think inaccuracies in them. But where I find those tools useful is for me, if I'm going to say, okay, this CFO is or is not likely to be the CFO you need through your hold period. I want data in a few areas. I want, I want to understand how finance is operating right now. So I'll get that through my interviews. I want to understand what this person's peers and what they themselves think, I call that 360 data on how they're performing. And then I want to look in a survey too. And I want to see where I can find patterns. Because to me, to make what is usually totally non-data-driven decision-making, which is almost all gut, right? right? Or like one interaction. That's how people make people decisions. And a lot of what I'm trying to do is, is take decisions that people make based on gut and make them more on data. And so if I can go into this business and finance is, is a dumpster fire and all this person's colleagues think that they're not good in these specific ways. And then I see a bunch of those same kind of like potential red flags in a personality survey. If it's in all three places, it's a thing. Yeah. Like let's not waste any more time worrying about it, whether it's good or it's a, a, a negative. 
It doesn't matter. And so for me, it's about finding patterns in that data and then synthesizing that up into a recommendation. But to do that, of course, you need to understand again, the thing I said, which is what are they going to be asking this person to do over the whole period? Right. So I guess there's a couple things there is these tools that you're using to make the assessments, like are any of them sort of proprietary tools or is it kind of a, you know, putting different pieces together? It sounds like it's more putting pieces together and kind of coming to, you know, uh, 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 conclusion based on those pieces in a way that really works for you, or is yeah, there any? It's the, right now. It's the latter. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and I think that that's that's the opportunity in my space, which is over time. I, I don't. I don't just want to create a collection of me's, which I think a lot of the firms in the market right now have been and are that. Yeah. They're like people who have enough at bats doing this work and are, are kind of the, the, the enough IQ EQ and, and a balance of both those things that they can get good data and interviews. And so they offer good recommendations, but a lot of, even in the way I'm talking about it right now for someone who's really rigorous and data driven to a certain extent, even though I'm talking about data, a lot of it is like this dude, Pat has some stuff in his head and he yeah. seems to make sense of things that are hard for us to make sense yeah. of. Right. And so like, I think the next turn in my space is for, businesses, I hope Mukala, to do a better job of finding ways to create IP around kind of like the methodology of how to figure out management teams and tie management capabilities to business performance and, and, um, and how to do that uh, in a way that's you know not super intrusive, relatively reliable. And then over time, ideally, I, I think a big differentiator in my space will be the ability to leverage uh, data. And so like now be able to say, based on the thousand projects like this we've did you, in the past, you can now start to glean insights around, not just in like this objective sense, me going into this business and learning about this business in isolation, me taking what I learn about that business and comparing it to the, the hundred like businesses I've worked with over the past few years. And you can start using things like benchmarking data. Sure. So, you know, thinking about the people that run these private equity firms, oftentimes you and I both have a lot of experience, very A-type people can think that they're the smartest guy in the room or, or person in the room, not necessarily the case, but, you know, often can be. So how does Pat and Mukala convince or sell or align with, you know, these type of decision makers that there's a lot of value to what you do? Well, I mean, it's funny. I had a client tell me the other day, it's all random, man. Yeah, exactly. You're like, great. Yeah, yeah. thanks for that. I think there's, by the way, I think that his statement, well, he said it in kind of a flippant way, is not wholly untrue. Like, uh, because of the point I just made around this idea of like, no one has built this, the best mousetrap yet. Right. And a lot of the processes that are, at least from what I can tell, available are like, they're they're derivations of one another with some small tweak here or there. And, and a lot of what it comes down to is, is in my experience, is the private equity uh, investors choosing the person they want to work with. And I think this is true in a lot of advisory businesses where like the consultant who's on your project is going to make as much, if not more difference than any IP or process that the firm has created. I've heard that feedback a lot. And I tend to think that that's true. And I think it's as true in my industry as it is in any other industry. So a lot of it for me is these clients meeting me and, and saying, all right, seems reasonable and worth a shot. And, you know, I I think people get comfortable with me because I'm a business guy first and a 
people guy second. And I think that's a differentiator in my space versus the other way around, mm-hmm. especially in the private equity market, right? I think that's one. I think I have a, a you know, a matter of fact, just call balls and strike style and a directness that they appreciate. And, and I think in addition, most of my clients, when they send me in, I am a representative of their firm. And if you send someone in who's a bozo or a jerk or whatever, you know, you're going to get judged for that. And I think there's a certain degree of like, this guy isn't going to totally embarrass us that, um, that gets them over the hill to choose me in particular. But then I'd say like, just in general, in terms of like selling this work, like let's talk about, first of all, being in private equity investors in my, in my mind, like the, the raw smarts required to be good at that. It, it, it's through the roof. Like the, yeah. these people are incredibly impressive thinkers. They understand uh, you know, markets and how to put money to work and where the trends are going, how to finance things. Uh, and many, many, you know, the competitive landscape, many, many other things that I'm not even mentioning. And they have to pull all of that together right. to come to a decision about whether or not to write this really big check. And it's a really, really hard job. And as a result, when they're doing deals, they retain a lot of third-party advisors to help them make more informed decisions. This, you know, this corporate world does similar things with hiring McKinsey, I think, sometimes when they want to make a strategic pivot. It's as much sure. about getting McKinsey to say that's the right idea as it is getting the idea from McKinsey, I think. Because yeah. then the CEO can say, well, well, they said to do it and they're the smartest, right? So I think there's, there's a lot of advisory work that's done. And so you think about the lawyers and the legal fees in these deals. They're gigantic. Uh, they're also bringing in auditing firms to do quality of earnings and and really understand the financials of these businesses. And they're doing those, you know, they're hiring an auditing firm, even though they're finance people. So they're looking for advisory support on things that they are very, very good at already. I would argue in many cases, probably better at than half the people at the advisory firms they're working with. So they're still doing that there. And then you get to human capital. And let's face it, most investors the, the career path looks something like top school, investment bank, private equity, business school, back to private equity. Sure. This is gross generalization. Yeah. Where in that journey is getting really astute on people? Nowhere, mm-hmm. right? And so I think there's also like a filling a gap in the swing thing where there are definitely people who are better at it than others. But I think through a combination of, you know, hiring someone who's done a hundred of these things versus just relying on your gut as an investor, and then also, you know, I can, I can, as an advisor, ask questions. And I get access that they don't get. I can ask things they wouldn't want to ask. And so mm-hmm. I, I think it's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, like, it's like pointing out the fact that like, hey, you're asking for help on things that you're really good at. Um, why in the world would you not ask for help on things that you're not as good at? Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, it's like an, it's like an agent, right? You put your agent mm-hmm. out there to do the dirty work in a way negotiate yeah. my contract for me, will you? Yes. Um, so let's, let's shift into actually building your business, which is different than the business that you do. How, how have you thought about building a service business? You know, and earlier you pointed to, or you said, you know, it's not just about hiring a bunch of, a bunch of me's, you know, but it kind of is to an extent if you yeah. want to really scale it. Right. So how, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's, this is the million dollar question. And, and this is like the working in the business versus working on the business. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I think I, I, I love the game so much 
that that one of my biggest shortcomings, I, and it's a strength and a weakness, like a lot of these things are, is like, I just want to run on the field and kick the ball. Mm-hmm. And so every time the client comes through and, and there's a new engagement, I'm just going to jump on. I mean, I'm going to jump on it because there's revenue there, but I'm also going to jump on it because that's what I want to do. And so I, it's been, I will just share up front, like the first thing I'd say is just how hard it has been for me to carve out the time and the bandwidth to really think through the on the business stuff versus just being like a cog on the hamster wheel in the business. Yeah. Right. Yeah, sure. And so to go back to the job crafting thing, like I am a team guy in my heart and I've, I've been that way my whole life. And when I spun out of my last firm and started Mukala, I deliberately said, it's going to be about a year on my own. I want to kind of like prove this concept out for me. I want to get my feet underneath me. There's a few client relationships I really want to develop and then I'm going to start building and I'm going to start hiring. And so I've now extended well beyond that in part because of the thing I just said, which is how hard it's been for me to prioritize doing non-client work, but also because of what's happened in the world. And so next up for me definitely is to your point, hiring more of me. I will hire, I would think two people before the end of the year and they're going to look a lot like me. And I think this is one of the things I think about, which is when I think about the future of Mukala, it's doing the work that I'm doing right now and then finding the people who are going to help me to do a few things. One is build additional ancillary logical service offerings that fit in and dovetail with what we're doing right now. Sure. Right? So how do you roll out a really effective performance management system in a portfolio company? How do you do a better job than connecting the way people are performing to value creation? There's a whole bunch of things that I don't even know about that I want to find people with expertise and perspective on to think about, you know, how do I take that initial diagnostic engagement we talked about where I go in and interview everybody and we assess that leadership team. And then how do we spin that into a three, four, five X revenue tail in additional work we do with the portfolio company for multiple years. Right. And I think there's a huge opportunity to do that. I don't see other people in the space doing that in an integrated way. I need different talent. I need people who know things I don't know. I want to be at the front of the spear and having the business development sales conversations and client management conversations to be part of the creative process, to participate in designing what those things will be. Mm -hmm. But I think I know I need people with different experience set and expertise than me to do that. So that's one thing in addition to like the uh, the mini me doing the same work I'm doing that, right. that I want to, I want to think about adding to the team. Another thing is you need to build in a, a human capital professional services business. You need to build a platform that is it's worth it and attractive to be on that people want to be on. Meaning what happens in my space a lot is and in, in not just in, in, in my space, by the way, but any human capital professional services business is you basically teach people how to do the work and then, they, then you teach them how to sell the work and manage client relationships. And then they pick up their head and they go, wait a minute, I can do all this myself. Why am I right. paying the house, you know, 50, 60, 75% of the work I'm doing? That's crazy. Sure. I'll just go stand up, you know, Pat's Pizza Shop. Yeah. Um, so I think the task upon me is to figure out how to build a platform that will supply things like, you know, uh, security in the flow of work, a sense of community, uh, ongoing learning and development, the consistent production of differentiated IP that will help those people get better, but also help differentiate the firm and the market. Like how do we build that platform that's going to attract and retain 
really top performers who at any point in time are always going to have the option after a certain point, what is it, three, five years in, depending on where they are when they arrive, to be able to spin out and do what I've done with McCullough. Yeah. So, you know, like the templates we've talked about a little bit would probably be, well, there's a bunch of them really, but you know, the McKinsey's of the world, the Bain, the BCG, the consulting firms that face that problem every day, really, but have gotten significant scale. And, you know, there's a roadmap there. It's just, you know, you're doing it in a different way. That's right. And I think about that, that a lot. I think th- those three firms, McKinsey, Bain, BCG are great examples that I think about a lot. And they were, you know, they were where I am at some point. And then there's a lot of ground between me and them. But what I, what I think they've, what they've done an amazing job of is they've done a really amazing job of knowledge management. Yeah. So they don't reinvent the wheel every time the way I am. It's like the database of projects like this that we've done before that people can tap into when they get put on a new engagement. And so that knowledge creates leverage in how quickly and easily the work gets done and who can do it. It also creates leverage in the sense that that knowledge compounds over time. Sure. And so they get smarter in a way that's like, I'm getting smarter every engagement, but it's in this like really ad hockey in my head. If I get hit by the bus, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like how do you institutionalize that? And I think they've done an incredible job of that. They've also done an incredible job of, from what I can tell, creating sufficient kind of like process in the way that work gets delivered. So these firms are able to sell these multi-million dollar engagements largely on the back of really smart, like 24 year olds. Right. That's a bit of hyperbole. I don't think it's always that simple, but from a human capital pyramid perspective, they've been able to do that. And so they've got this like knowledge leverage and they've got this, this process leverage and this human capital leverage. And that's why, you know, if you're a very senior person at McKinsey, a lot of them probably don't want to go stand up their own thing because they don't want to do the work. They want to do the job they're doing, being that consigliere to the senior leader in the big business and having those strategic conversations and used to be flying around the world now doing a lot of Zooms. Like they want that job. <clears throat> they don't want to be in the trenches grinding out the analysis. And so I think as, as Mukala, like I hope to create some kind of you know, infrastructure like that at Mukala where there is real knowledge leverage for the people on the platform and there is real human capital and process leverage to help make the work get done in a more efficient way than it's getting done right now. It sounds like you've got a pretty good roadmap. I think earlier you were kind of saying, well, you know, take it, take it as it comes, don't have a plan, but it sounds like you got quite the roadmap. And I think you've got all the answers. It's just about putting the pieces of the puzzle together, which to me, you know, is inspiring, motivating. And it sounds like you're right there. It really does. I appreciate it. It doesn't always feel that way to me, but I, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I'm talking about it a lot and I'm asking a lot of questions and I'm getting some really great perspective. And I think it's, it's, you know, for me, the big thing is just being patient and letting it all, it'll all come together. I agree. For sure. You know what? I was listening to one of the co-founders of Stripe talking the other day, and I think he may have said that it took him six or nine months to pull the trigger on his first new hire. Obviously that, that points to the importance of, you know, human resources, getting the right people that ultimately do all the things that we talk about, which is sort of deeply ingrained the culture. And, and, you know, he, he was saying that if you, if you get the right person, you know, instead of doing, you know, two X the work, because there's two people, you, you are able to do 10 X the work. Right. And that's the impact that you want. If you're a private equity investor, that's like ching, 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 ultimately, you know? So, yes. So it's, uh, you're onto it. Definitely onto it. Is there anything that 
you know, maybe we haven't covered that you think is, is relevant or that you kind of want to throw out there? You know, I think the only other thing I, I'd add, it, it kind of just is, spins off the last thing I said is, um, is just the importance of mentors. Mm-hmm. It, you know, like f- for me in a number of ways, like one of the big things I took away from Bridgewater was, I think Ray Dalio said this in a meeting, I've had it like seared in my head ever since, but the quote was the probability that the right answer is in your head versus outside of your head is almost zero, almost all the time, <laughs> which which is like this, for me, great reminder that almost everything I'm trying to do, other people have done before. Right. And so making sure that I'm making a point of tapping into the knowledge and wisdom of others is, is such a, a huge thing for me. And I think part of what got me to that place was being part of a place like Bridgewater, but also just the impact that so many people have had on me along the way. You know, I can think of, of many and people who were, you know, bold and astute in seeing things in me that I wasn't seeing and naming those things and, and challenging me to pursue them. And like a, a lot of those conversations are the reason that I am where I am today and that I am who I am today. And, and we're, we're all kind of like that, you know, that, that trite thing of like, you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. I think there's huge wisdom in that. And so the thing I would just share in the way of kind of a closing thought around some of these things is just how much gratitude I have for the people who have been those mentors and advisors to me over the years. And I know many of them will continue to do that. And then just a bit of a call to action for anyone who, who's listening to know that you can have a, a huge impact on people in like ways that are probably so easy for you. Like it's such a light lift for you to have that 15 minute conversation or, or like read that one thing they sent you or whatever it is, or take an interest in that person on your team who you see extra potential in, like you, you can have a gigantic impact on not only who and how they're living their lives in that moment, but you know, where that, where that story can go. Yeah. That's, that's great insight. You know, sometimes it's tough to, to figure out when to say yes to things and when to say no. But I feel like those things that you just talked about, like read that paper or have that conversation you know, they compound over time, right? Because you never know when it's going to come back. Not that that's why you're doing it. Yes. But it's, uh, you know, it's the epitome of something that compounds in time. You almost just got to trust it. Yes. Yes. And do it to your point. You're not even doing it because you think it's going to come back positively for you. Mm -hmm. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Awesome. That's a phenomenal place to, to tie the knot, but you're based in Boston. Um, and you know, I guess you're not limited to, to geography necessarily, but no. are you looking for, for new clients or you kind of just take it organically? Where, where, where do you stand there? Absolutely. I mean, I'm uh, based in Boston. I've done work all over, international work all over the U.S. as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, for me, it's anyone in, in, in private equity, middle market in particular is, is where I've, I've, I've played. It's a, it's a nice niche where mm-hmm. Uh, I think my work, I've, I've developed some degree of pattern recognition working with those kinds of businesses and, and that, that helps aid, aid the work as well. And so, yeah, very interested in, in developing new relationships with private equity investors. And, you know, I, I'd say the other, the other 
the thing I'd say is is very interested in in meeting people who are considering making a move into this kind of this kind of space. Yeah, or interested in in collaborating on the work because I think the 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 awesome thing in the talent space is that for a long time there's been a dearth of great talent. And like, you know, one of my mentors said to me, like, as he was really recruiting me hard, you know, like anything I can do to get you to stay in this industry, I want to do because you're going to help make it better. And so I'm a huge proponent of recruiting people to do uh, talent advisory work. And there's many forms that that can take. And, and then in addition to other businesses that are out there doing cool work in the space, you know, for me, again, no one's built the best mousetrap yet. And I think the solution, the, the, the better solutions that are going to begin to emerge over the next five, 10 years are going to be collaborations between organizations that are maybe doing things that aren't exactly the same, but finding a way to bring those things together and create more leverage for clients, create a better work environment for employees, help uh, teams and businesses be more successful. So I, I think the, in addition to, to PE, private equity investors who, who are looking for good human capital advisory work, that's that's kind of one population I'm very interested in. And then the second population is people who are are doing this kind of work or interested in doing this kind of work. Who who um, you know maybe there's a, a world in which we can we can work together. That's great. That's super insightful. Um, you know the energy. I want to go for a jog now after talking. You know, just get <laughs> get the juices flowing. But yeah, really appreciate your time, Pat. Awesome work. Keep up the good work. Anyway, we can help happy to and we'll make sure that you know people know where to find you if they want to reach out or connect so thanks so much love it darcy thank you man my honor your time is valuable so thanks for joining us for this episode of venture and gains where we connect great people ideas and opportunities it's this idea of net weaving versus networking Remember that you can find more episodes at VentureAndGains.com. And if you know any entrepreneurs, emerging asset managers, or fascinating people that you think would be a good fit, flip us a note and let us know. Stay well. Darcy McConvey is a director of private capital markets at Graybrook Realty Partners and is registered under Graybrook Securities, Inc. The opinions and statements expressed by Darcy and the Venture and Gains guests are their own and they do not reflect the opinions of Greybrook Realty Partners or Greybrook Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.